You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been walking through this particular book verse by verse. Our series is called Walk Worthy, and so we're talking about some deeper conviction. This morning we're going to talk about some deeper conviction that we need to have about the subject of change. Now let me ask you a question to get started here this morning. Are you ready for this question? I don't even think you're ready for this. I'm looking at you. You're not even ready for this, Brittany. You're not ready for this. Are you ready for this? This is a heavy question. A heavy question here. You're not going to like this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Here, here's the question. When was the last time that you were so convicted about something that needed to change in your life that it brought you to tears? Anytime this week? Uh, in the past month? In the past decade? Are we getting warmer at this point? Now, let me ask you, let, let me ask the question a different way. How many of you know somebody right now that needs to change? Was, is that hard to come up with a, a couple of names? Right. How many of you were sitting next? We won't ask uh, that question. But listen, is there somebody that you have had such a heavy burden for that you've actually set, you've actually shed tears over something that needed to change in their life in the last week, last month? You know, it's quite likely that for most of us, we have shed tears over something that needed to change in somebody else's life, a, a child, a parent, a friend, a spouse, and yet it has been a long time since we have felt the conviction of God so strongly that we were brought to tears over something in our life that needed to change. Well, if God's Spirit does what you've already asked Him to do in our singing, and if I do my job right, you do your job right, I think there may be a few tears at the end of this service, because at the end of the service, I'm going to give you a list of uh, 78 things that need to change. Uh, seriously, you've probably already got that. Don't look at that right now. That's for later. Uh, but uh, we're going to kind of set it up here in the message, because what we're about to look at are some things that need to change. And I want you to see the word picture that is supplied for us in the Scripture. Don't you love it when there's word pictures in the Bible? Because, I mean, some, some parts of the Bible are kind of technical and it's hard to figure out. But especially the Apostle Paul, he's so good at giving these word pictures so we can understand what in the world he's talking about. We looked last week at this word picture of walking and how it implies there's a destination and it never stops and you keep moving and it's step by step. So many wonderful things about a word picture. Well, there's another word picture supplied for us here in Ephesians chapter 4 and it's mentioned twice. I want you to show it to you up front. Then we're going to walk through the passage. Look at verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 4. And he says this, he says, put off your old self. And look it down at verse 24, and put on the new self. Put off and put on. What do you think of when you think about putting something on or putting something off? I think about uh, a wardrobe here. Now, how many of you understand that the Apostle Paul, at the time that he was writing this, probably did not walk into a walk-in closet and kind of pick out his outfits for the next few weeks? Uh, probably not a whole lot of variety or selection back in the day. Back in the day, when somebody put off some clothing, 
it was because it was worn out, smelly, dirty, and it didn't work anymore. And then you had to really work hard to try to find something new to put on. It wasn't deciding between 14 different selections, right? Something was worn out, something wasn't working, something else had to be put on. Very different than the experience that I have on a typical Sunday morning. Can I give you a little insight into the Griffith household? About 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. This is what happens. I walk into my closet and I use all of my fashion sense to prepare something to put on. And so I do my best and I walk out of that closet closet and face four females who are there to judge me. And they look at me and one in particular usually puts her hand on her hip, sticks it out like this and says, where do you think you're going dressed like that? You need to change. And so she sends me back in and she spits, spits me up a little better. And so uh, here, here's the analogy that Paul is using. He is actually using this analogy for the regular, normal, daily Christian life. Do you know what he's trying to say? Where in the world do you think you're going dressed like that, for crying out loud? That is not going to work. That is worn out. That is old. You need to put on something new. And so there is a continual daily process of change that takes place in a believer's life. Now, I've talked to some Christians, and it, it, it baffles my mind to hear them kind of describe what they think Christianity is like. There are some people, maybe it's you, that think all of the change that took place or that needed to take place somehow miraculously happened in the moment that you got saved, in the moment that you became a Christian. Now, certainly that is a radical change. That changes our legal standing before God. It changes our eternal destiny. But that is not the finish line of change. That is the starting place of change. And we change gradually over and over and over as we put off the old self and put on the new self. Some Christians think somehow that God is kind of blind to all the dysfunction in your life and all the things that need to change. Now listen, God sees you through the blood of Christ, but He also sees all of the unfinished business that is still needed to change. And so we're going to talk about change here as we walk through this. And I want you to see it beginning back up in verse 17. Here's, here's what we need to understand. Uh, change begins when you get a new perspective. When I walk out of my closet wearing whatever clothes that I picked out, I didn't know it was ugly until my daughters looked at me and said, Dad, that's not going to work for you. Okay, it, They gave me a, a new perspective. One of the, the shows that our our children used to watch, I don't think it's on anymore, but it's called the show, What Not to Wear. Right? Well, that's, that's kind of the title of this message. This is what not to wear for a Christian. And he begins it here in verse 17. He says this. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. I find it interesting that he's kind of redundant here. Do you see the two words? He's got something to say, and he's got something to testify. Why does he... Why is he redundant there? Well, the word testify is very important. It gives us a clue into the urgency of what we're talking about. The word testify is translated from the Greek word that we get our English word 
martyr from. A martyr is someone who at the risk of his life is willing to say some things unapologetic, unafraid, because the urgency of the moment. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, I, I want you to know, hear me loud and clear, this is not an optional matter for you. This is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is always in the process of change. Now listen, I'm speaking to Christians here, but in any crowd this size, I'm sure there are a few non-Christians. Only two types of people in the room, Christians and non-Christians. Or if you're an optimist, pre-Christian. Because we can take care of that before the end of this service, okay? I mean, all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ, understand what He did on that cross was for a dirty, rotten sinner like you, and you need to change. Now, that doesn't mean that you now become all cleaned up. It just means that you get started in the process of cleaning up. So there's only two types of people, Christians and non-Christians. But for a Christian, the process of change is an urgent matter. And so Paul says, you may kill me for saying this. I'm going to say it anyway, even if it makes me a martyr. I've got some things to say and to testify in the Lord, and this is it. Gulp real hard. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, you, this is fascinating. It, it might sneak up on you if you're not paying attention. Back up in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls the people he's writing to Gentiles. He says, you Gentiles. So he's writing to a local church in a historical place in Ephesus where there had been a church established and predominantly the members of this church were Gentiles, very much like Harvest Bible Chapel. Predominantly, I'm sure that most of us, 99% of us, we're, we're Gentiles. So what is a Gentile? Well, ethnically speaking, a Gentile is somebody who's not a Jew. They didn't receive the promises of God in the Old Testament, the covenant promises. They didn't have all the revelation of the Old Testament. They weren't part of the Hebrew people that were led out of Egypt captivity and crossed the Red Sea and all that history that you read about in the Old Testament. And so every other person that's not a Jew in the world was a Gentile. That is who Paul was writing to. And then he gets to chapter 4 and says, You must no longer walk as a Gentile. And if you were sitting in that church, you might have scratched your head, but wait a minute, I am a Gentile. And I'm not supposed to walk as a Gentile? You see, apparently, when you receive Christ, the change is so radical that it completely changes your identity. And even though ethnically they were a Gentile, were Gentiles, spiritually speaking, they had a brand new identity. And that brand new identity as a follower of the Lord gave them a new perspective on what they were like while they, before they had received Christ. And so the question is, well, if I'm not supposed to walk as a Gentile, what's your question? What's your question? How does a Gentile walk? Good question. The answer is supplied at the end of verse 17. What does it say? Uh, Gentiles walk in the, uh, what is it? The futility of their minds. Futility is another word for vanity or emptiness. 
It means to be meaningless, to have no purpose or direction. Now, if you had come up to me before I became a Christian and asked me to describe my life, I probably wouldn't tell you, yeah, my life is just kind of futile. It's just bad. But that is the perspective you must come to before you are willing to change. Nobody's going to change. I can't convince you to change until you understand that the way that you're walking is empty, meaningless, full of vanity and futile. And it's not until the Holy Spirit convicts you that the life you're living is futile that you would sense the need for change. Paul goes on in verse 18 and begins to give us an even better description of what it was like to live outside of Christ. So what does it look like for a person who's living outside of Christ? He gives us a seven-layer description. Here's what he says. They are, speaking of these Gentiles, that we're talking about just a non-Christian, they are darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Congratulations. Aren't you glad you came to church? Isn't that such an encouraging list? Right? Now listen, when you are living as a non-Christian, you don't even know that that is the description of your life until... God begins to give you a new perspective. You see, for me, I thought I was doing just fine. I mean, I went to school, and uh, I took biology, philosophy, psychology, had some technology, and so I thought I was pretty enlightened. I, I thought that, man, there's, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I thought I was enlightened, but then when you, God gives you a new perspective, you realize I was darkened in my understanding. It's kind of like the permacloud that kind of hovers over Michiana in, in February. It just kind of, it's just kind of dark and gloomy, and you don't even know that the sun is still out there sometimes. And so that's the understanding. And what Paul is saying, if you're going to change, and if you have been changed, if you've become a Christian, you do not want to continue to walk the way you once walked, and the way you once walked was darkened in your understanding. You see, I thought I was I thought that God was kind of unconcerned or uninvolved in the world, but then I realized I was alienated from the life of God. And this is the testimony of everybody who's now walking with Christ. Your testimony is probably something like this. I wasn't necessarily thinking I was a bad person. I was kind of religious. And if you'd asked me if I believed in God, I probably would have said yes. And but he just, he just seemed really distant. And it's like, can you really know what he's like? And can you really have a relationship with him? Does he actually speak to you? And, and do, you, do you really have this relationship that's close? But I look around the world, there's so much tragedy. And I look at the hurt and the heartache in my life and lack of money and sickness. And it's like, God, where are you? You seem kind of unconcerned about these things that are really burdens on my heart. And if you 
really loved me, it seemed like you'd step in the middle of this and fix it. And either you're unconcerned or maybe you're concerned, but you're kind of uninvolved. And so if you're good, then why don't you change it? Oh, maybe you're good, but you don't have the power to change it. And so I don't even know. No, listen, when God flips the switch, you realized it's not that God was unconcerned and uninvolved. It's that you were alienated from the life of God. You're spiritually dead. And so, of course, you have all this question about God that seems so distant. And so God is saying, now that you are a Christian, you are not to walk as one who is alienated from God, questioning God, calling God into judgment, but you are to live as one who now has the life of God on the inside of you and you understand His will and His ways. Before you become a Christian, you think that truth is unknowable. But then you realize it's not that truth was unknowable. It's just that you are ignorant. I'm from Oklahoma. It only has two syllables in Oklahoma. Ignorant. Now, to be ignorant does not mean that you are stupid. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, you are not stupid. You are just ignorant. Okay? Just say that. Now, that's not a slam. We use that in a derogatory sense. That is not a, that is not a derogatory term. As a matter of fact, it, it should make you sympathetic toward an ignorant person. Ignorant just simply means uninformed. And what a person who is living outside of Christ is, is uninformed or unaware that there is objective truth. And so what we think is that truth is just something you make up. Truth is probably found deep down in the inner recesses of your soul. And if you'll just stop and meditate and get in touch with your inner being, you can find the truth deep down on the inside. But of course, that truth is truth for you, but it may not be true for somebody else. And so don't use your truth to cast judgment on somebody else. And this is what the world is living in. And it's all because they are alienated from the life of God and they are ignorant of the truth. But when God flips the switch, He gives you a new perspective. And you realize truth is not something you make up. Truth is something you hear. Because God has spoken what is true. And truth is something that is true for you and every person who has ever lived in every place at any time. And so truth can be known. And when God gives you a new perspective, you have this reality you didn't have before. And God is saying, now that you're a Christian, are you a Christian? He's like, you've got to live as one who knows the truth, who is aware. Don't be ignorant of things that God has spoken. He goes on and he talks about how we have a, had a hard heart. You see, at one time I thought that I was just kind of tough. You have to be tough to survive in a world like this, right? You got to be strong. You got to be an independent thinker, right? You can't let people brainwash you and push you around. You got to stand up for your rights. You might even need to march and protest every now and then. Just so people don't, don't push things on you if you're tough. And we see that as a virtue. And yet when God flips the switch, you realize, no, it's not that you're tough. It's that you've got a hard heart and you're unteachable, and you don't like to be told things that need to change. 
and you build up walls and push people away, and you certainly are going to put yourself under somebody else's authority, especially God. That's what life is like before we come to Christ. But now that we come to Christ, you're to have a soft heart. That doesn't mean you're, you're somehow soft. It just means that you're tender, ten, tender, you're pliable, you're moldable, and you are always wanting to change for the better. So are you tough? Or is it that you have a hard heart? The next thing he says is these people are calloused. You see, you may think, no, I've just got thick skin. I got thick skin. That, that's what I am. I mean, if you knew the life that I'd lived and the abuses that I've been involved in, the way that people have mistreated me and been knocked around by this world, I mean, I'm a survivor. And I've got thick skin. Really? When God flips the switch, you realize, no, you've just, got, you've just become calloused. You know what a callous is? Layers of skin that builds up over time that deadens the sensitivity of the nerve endings. Years ago, when I was in college, I had a, a job. I worked at a funeral home, which has given me built-in sermon illustrations for the rest of my life. But uh, uh, one particular day, my assignment was to climb a ladder and change a light bulb um, kind of on the second story. It was a floodlight, outdoor floodlight. And interestingly, it had become flooded. There had been water get in there. And so when I twisted it, the whole thing broke off in my hand. And it cut my pinky really deep. It just took a big old chunk of meat out of there. It was bleeding like crazy. It was the worst. Aren't you glad you came to church? And, so, and, and it just is the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. And as that thing began to heal over the next few weeks, there were layers and layers of extra skin. Apparently, my body thought I was going to do this often. And so uh, it built up an extra layer of protection. And what once was the most sensitive part of my body, you couldn't touch it without it putting excretionary pain through my body. Now, 30 years later, there's still extra layers of sin. There's, there's scars and calluses there. Why? To prevent me from feeling pain. Do you know why some people can come to church and never sense the convicting power of the Holy Spirit? It's not that God isn't speaking. It's you've got calluses built up over the sensitive places in your heart. And you're not to be that way. Especially now as a Christian. You're not to be calloused. You're to be tender-hearted. You're to be sensitive. You're to be leaning in and listening and asking God to speak because when He speaks, it changes us. And it changes what we seek and it changes what we see. But not if you're calloused. And then Paul says this. He says that they were given over to sensuality. You see, once I thought I was exercising my freedom, but then I realized, no, I, I wasn't free. I was enslaved to sensuality. Do you see the term there, sensuality? So most of the time we think of that in a sexual sense, and certainly it includes all that, but it's even more than that. Sensuality just means that you are constantly going on a search for something that will please one of your five senses. Something you see, smell, touch, taste, or hear. And in any one of those areas, you can be enslaved to. And when everything that you're doing is 
futile. You're constantly looking for the next thing to bring a pleasure sense. There's a pleasure center in your brain. And when one of those senses activates something pleasurable, it gives you a sense of pleasure. But it, it's always short-lived, futile, meaningless, because you always have to find the next thing to bring the sensation. And so... It's something we call the law of diminishing returns. Do you know what that is? What satisfied me today will not satisfy me tomorrow. It will take more of that sensual pleasure. And that's why we become addicted to things as simple as Krispy Kreme donuts or shopping or social media or a relationship or pornography. It's all sensuality and we think we're free but God shows us a new perspective. We're not to be like that. And you are not now to live the way you once lived. That's your old self. That's to be put off. You're to put on the new self. And then there's one other thing here. He says this at the end of verse 19. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's almost as if he's kind of using that as a junk drawer. Everything else you could possibly imagine. It, I don't have a category for it. It just all goes into this category of every kind of impurity. And it uses the word greedy. We usually think of greedy as like greedy for money. It includes that. But here it's just talking about this insatiable desire for more. I just want more. And the reason you want more is because nothing ever satisfies so when I was outside of Christ, I thought I could find satisfaction somewhere in something or someone. But one day God graciously turns the light on and I realize everything I tried left me empty. Now listen, this is a message for Christians, but it could be that right now you're finally figuring out why you're so miserable. Because you have tried to satisfy God-given desires in God-forbidden ways. And it's left you dissatisfied, empty, and maybe today for the first time, God's giving you a new perspective. I need to change. This is not working out too great. And if you are a Christian, you must no longer walk the way you once walked in the futility of your minds. Remember how futile that life was. So change begins when you get a new perspective. Secondly, change is possible when I receive a new nature. Change is possible when I receive a new nature. Look down again at verse 22. Let's finish these verses. It says, we are to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Corrupt means polluted, damaged, through deceitful desires. Do you know that not every desire you have is a true desire? Some desires you have are there to lie to you. And that desire just says, man, if I could have a boyfriend, if I could have a husband, if I could have a wife that loved me, if I could just get a better job, if I could just live in the place I wanted to live, if I could get better clothes, I would be happy. Those are deceitful desires. 
Because our desires are to be met only in Christ. And so he says, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life. And if you could just see how ugly your clothes are, you wouldn't wear those. How many of you have had the experience? Have you noticed on Facebook now that like there's this memory function that it's like these old photos of the old you show up every so often? How many of you were alive in 1997, 20 years ago, all right? Have you recently seen a photo of yourself from 1997? You looked better, but you were ashamed of what you were wearing. Anybody had that phenomenon? I mean, the parachute pants, you know, that, 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 that was a good look in 97, but not for today. And your, your children are like looking to you and like, what are you thinking? Why would you wear something? They mock you. Let me give you a little parenting strategy when that happens. Just remind them, many more photos of your children are being taken and posted than were ever taken or posted of you. And in the year 2037, you're going to show back up and mock them, okay? Because what they think is cool now, in 2037, they will think is ridiculous. And so the question is, why would you ever wear that? That belongs to your old pattern, your old self. That was, your, that was a part of a different wardrobe. And so now for a Christian, we dress differently because we have a new nature. And he, he speaks of the new nature here in verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now I want you to see this. Verse 22. Put off, put on. Who is the active agent in verse 22? Who's got to do something? Who is that? You do, and I do. I'm either going to obey or disobey this. Look at verse 24. And put on the new self. Who's the active agent? Me. I've got to do something. I'm either going to obey or disobey. But look at verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Who's the active agent? It's not me. I'm not doing something. Something is being done to me. I am being renewed. That's the tense of the language there. Verse 23 doesn't shout to us an imperative. It doesn't say, be new. It's like, I have no idea how to be something other than what I am, right? What does he say? He says, be renewed. Someone is acting upon me to make me new. And it affects the spirit of my mind. It's the spirit of my mind. Now, think about this. Why doesn't it just use the word mind? Why doesn't it just say, be renewed in your mind? He adds this thing called the spirit of my mind. Did you know your mind has a spirit? I don't think that's talking about some supernatural, weird... It's, some, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. So what's it talking about? Have you ever heard the term, I've had my imagination captured? Have you ever had your imagination captured by something? What it means is that you, uh, you're so fixated on something. You're curious about it. You, you study it. You want to find out more about it, right? At the deepest part of who you are, there's an imagination that is 
captured with the things of Christ. And when you understand what Christ has done for you on that cross, do you know what happens? You experience a new birth. You get a new spiritual life. And so the spiritual life activates the spirit of your mind. You get a new identity. You're no longer who you once were. You get a new self. You get new desires, not deceitful desires, but desires for things that are good. That means you now love things you once hate and hate things you once loved. It's incredible. It's new, new desires and new power. This new power gives you the ability to obey God in ways you never could on your own, and then you get a new mind. And I want you to see something about this mind in verse 24. But to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true, in true righteousness and holiness. Notice, the likeness of God. How many of you, the last time you uh, produced a resume, you put this on your resume? Um, I'm like God. You want to know something about me? I am just like God. You know the reason why you didn't put that on there? It's because you know there's some, there's some things that need to change if you're going to be anything like God at all, right? But that's what God does for you every day. When you put off and put on you are putting on things that look like God because you were created after the likeness of God. This new you is created after the likeness of God. How many of you uh, in wisdom left off the words righteous and holy on your resume? You just left, left that off? Because you know there's some things that need to change if you're going to put that on there. Right. So here's what God wants. He wants the new you to look like God in righteousness and holiness. Now listen, I, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty high bar. How many of you agree that's a pretty high bar? Righteousness and holiness? And there are a lot of people who just give up at that point. Say, I can't do that. There's no way I could ever do that. Now listen, here is the key to change. It is to become so fixated on what Christ has done, to let your imagination be captured with what Christ has done that you begin to change. So what do you have to think about? Think about this. You, the requirement for us is to be created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what we're to put on. We're to put on righteousness and holiness. We're to put on the likeness of Christ. This is the story of the gospel. One day, Jesus looked at the old you and was not impressed and recognized you needed to change, but recognized you had no power to do it. So do you know what he did? He put off his righteousness and his holiness. And he put on the likeness of you. He put on humanity. He became like you so that on the cross he could put on your sin. And on the cross he was treated as if he was unrighteous and unholy. And with the knowledge of Christ's love for me, the sacrifice that he would make that payment for my sin, now that is the motivation for me to put off unrighteousness and unholiness and put on righteousness and holiness so that I can look like Christ. That is the new nature 
that motivates the change. And then this, change continues as I learn from a new teacher. Look at verse 20. After he describes this life outside of Christ, darkened and alienated and ignorant and hardness of heart and calloused and given up to sensuality and practicing every kind of impurity, he uses the great conjunction. What is it? But that is not the way you learned Christ. Christ didn't teach you those things. You must have learned that from somebody else. Probably some seventh grade friend. Probably some movie you went to. Probably some stupid app on your phone. That's the way you learned to be so callous and so ungodly. You didn't learn that from Christ. And listen, if you will not learn from Christ, there will be a thousand other teachers standing in line to take His place. You will either learn from Christ, you will hear from Christ and be taught by Christ, or you will become a student of ungodly teachers. So the choice is yours, Christian. Who did you learn that behavior from? And if you're not changing, it's because you haven't been enrolled in the school where Christ is teaching. Notice what he says in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Do you remember earlier when we said that we were ignorant? Well, listen, that's because we hadn't been taught the truth. The truth is in Jesus. And the more the truth gets in you, the more you will change, and the more you will change, the more you will be created after the likeness of Christ in truth and holiness. Change continues as I learn from a new teacher. Are you learning from Christ? And You're going to be here next week in church, right? You're coming back? You're coming back? Okay, because we're not finished. We're going to have to learn something. Next week, we're all going to school. We're all going to school, and Christ is going to be our teacher. But um, I know what some of you are thinking right now, and, and you're thinking, if I could just have some specifics. Um, I anticipated that. And so in your bulletin, I want you to take out the list that looks like this. Put off, put on. Now, as you pull that out, resist the temptation to look at all of that just right now. Let me explain to you what we're going to do, okay? Now listen, I have learned some things about surviving a Michiana winter, Okay? And if you're new to the area, let me help you out here. The key to surviving a Michigan winter is dressing in layers. Is, it, is, it, is that correct? Okay. Now, when it starts to warm up, you have to shed some layers. You have to put off some layers. Um, there are 78 layers that Christ wants us to put off. You say, man, I didn't know there was that much sin in the Bible. Uh, this is 25% of the sin that's mentioned in the Bible, okay? Now listen, we're not going to get through all of this. I've handed this sheet out before. This is a, this is a little tool that we've used years ago in Life Action. I've, I've handed this to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of congregations. And uh, every now and then we pull it back out because we need to change. And if you were kind of guessing about, I wonder what God wants to change. Well, let's start with this. Number one, a lack of love lack of love. Let, let me tell you what I want you to do. As we, as we, we're not going to walk through all this, but I'm, we're going to get you started here. 
And I'm going to give you some time just to sit with Christ and He's going to be the teacher. I'm going to, I'm going to stop teaching and Christ is going to be our teacher. But if you have found in the last 12 months yourself having a lack of love, I want you to circle the number beside that particular sin. So, a lack of love for God. In the last 12 months, if that's true, just circle that. A lack of love for your spouse. A lack of love for your children. A lack of love for your parents. A lack of love for your boss. A lack of love for a group of people. A lack of love for people that make more money than you. A lack of love for people that make less money than you. A lack of people... A lack of love for people that look different than you, have a different color than you, are of a different political party than you, uh, people from a different part of the world than you. If you've had a lack of love, if you've had a lack of love for church, if you've had a lack of love for your pastor, just go ahead and circle um, number one if you've had any lack of love. Are you understanding this? Because we're going to put that off. Circle that. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you time here at the end of the service. I'm going to allow you before God in prayer to put that off. You're going to leave it right here. Okay? And once you've done that, you can check through the number. All right? Number two, judging. Now, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And that doesn't mean that you should never judge. We judge all the time about uh, what kind of clothes to wear, uh, who we employ, where we're going to work, where we're going to school. There's all kinds of judgments that we make. What Jesus was saying is, you're not allowed to judge someone with a different measurement than you judge yourself. For most of us, what we're guilty of is it is, we are way better at seeing the sin in somebody else's life than we are at seeing in our own. And the proper attitude of a Christian is to understand, there's so much unfinished business in me, there's so much that needs to change in me, I've got very little time left over to judge you. I'm spending all the time on me. So, if you are guilty of judging somebody else and that being an easier exercise than judging your own sin, just go ahead and circle number two there. And in a few minutes, you can, before God, confess that sin, put it off, and you're going to put on, on the other side of the page, what does it say? I'm going to let God search my heart. Number three, bitterness. Bitterness is harbored hurt. Has somebody hurt you? Somebody slandered you, somebody mistreated you, somebody abused you, somebody cheated on you, somebody been disloyal to you, and if you harbored that in your heart, you stored that kind of for future use, instead of releasing that before God and understanding that God has forgiven me of so much sin, how can I now not forgive a brother that sins against me? If there's any ounce of bitterness, I want you to circle number three. We're going to put that off, and we're going to put on tender-hearted, and forgiving. Okay? That's the way it's going to work. Now, it is 12.08. I'm done teaching, but the service is not over. This is what I want you to do. There will be no formal dismissal of this service. Okay? I want you to take as much time as you need. I'd at least like you to finish the first page, the first 20. You may want to take this, and before you go to work tomorrow... Pull this back out either tonight or tomorrow and work through every one of these 78 things and say, God, I want to make sure that I am applying what I'm learning at church. I don't want to just kind of take notes and say, I wasn't that a nice service and have some people slap me on the back. I want to change. And so, God, I'm putting off. I'm putting on. You can keep this in your Bible. You can use this as a regular exercise. But we need to get serious about not walking as we once did. Put on the new self, put off 
the old self. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you time. We're going to keep the, the auditorium quiet. And so let's save our conversations for out in the lobby. I know you have children to pick up and things like that. We've got them. We'll, we'll keep them for a little while. Um, and uh, let's just pray right now and ask God to give us His mind as we do this. Father, tonight, today, we pray that You would change us continually. Thank You for the conviction of Your Spirit, the clarity of Your Word. God, I pray that You would guard us from experiencing any kind of false guilt or false shame because we know that with an exercise like this comes the knowledge of what You have done, paying the penalty for these sins, and yet You've called us to put them off. And so, God, would You give humility? Would You be our teacher right now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stay as long as you want. Whenever you feel like God's finished with you, you can slip out quietly. Not everybody's going to leave at the same time. That's okay. Let's keep the conversations out in the lobby. And uh, we'll see you next week. You are loved. <laughs>